Have you ever dreamed of being able to make more money, live a better life, and have the financial freedom that's rightfully yours? Well now is your chance. With an engaging perspective and tone, your host Ryan Dement will guide you through your journey to financial freedom one step at a time. Let's get to it. Here is your host Ryan Dement. Hey guys, Ryan Dement from Chasing Financial Freedom Podcast. Hope you guys are having a great day. We have a returning guest. Tim was on Chasing Happiness last week. He was able to step in for a guest that could not come on Chasing Financial Freedom. So Tim is back. If you guys haven't met him on the other podcast, go listen to him, hear what he has to say. But today, Tim is going to talk more about how he became a ghostwriter, how he's earning his living as a ghostwriter. And we're going to talk a little bit about his book, Swipe, that he is now an author of. So he's coming out behind the curtain. Tim, welcome into the show. Thanks, Rent. Good to be back. I had the head for the first time. I'm sure I'll have just as much fun this time. So Yes. So thank yeah. you for coming in and on short notice. So let's jump right in. So before we get into being a ghostwriter, just a little about you and then we'll we'll get into the nuts and bolts. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'll get more into this later, but I'm a ghostwriter. I've been a professional writer for 36 years. I've been freelance for 20 eight of those years. And I live in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm a native Californian. And I, as you said earlier in the intro, I am finally stepping out from behind the curtain and publishing my own co-authored book, which actually comes out on March 21st, which is called Swipe, The Science Behind Why We Don't Finish What We Start. And that is my first foray into the being out front in front of the book, which is it's been interesting. It's been a little, people are asking me, well, how many clips of on, you on podcasts do you have? Things like that. I'm like, none, because I haven't had to do it in the past. So it's very comfortable being behind the curtain. I don't have to be out front. I just write the words that get these people in trouble and they go out and deal with trouble. But that's the ABCs of me. I'm a jazz singer and things like that. And I have a couple of daughters and I'm married and like I said, live in Kansas City, Missouri. So those are the sort of the basics of the bio. Cool. So let's just jump right in and let's talk about how you got into the ghostwriting business and then nuts and bolts of it. So let's start back. What started the career and what kicked it off? I wanted to explain because I know a lot of people don't know what ghostwriting actually is. Let me start there, if I might, because people hear about it. They don't know anything about it. A lot of people heard about ghostwriters because of Spare, the book that just came out a couple months ago from Prince Harry, because he had a ghostwriter who has done three or four huge books. I've done a lot more than that, but none of mine has been as big as that. A ghostwriter basically is a professional writer who writes books that other people put their names on. Simple as that. It's been a, it's, that profession has been around for hundreds of years, as long as there have been people who wanted to write books, but couldn't write. Either the people who hire me and other ghosts, and there aren't that many of us, there's probably a few hundred in the country. They're people who have a reason to want to publish a book with their name on it and either don't have the time to write it don't have the skill to write it or more, more likely both because writing well is not something everyone can do. And writing is certainly at a professional level is not something everyone can do. And even if they have the skill, they almost never have the time because I'm dealing with people who are CEOs and professional athletes and so on. They don't have the time to do just six months or a year figuring out what their book looks like and outlining it and draft, writing multiple drafts and things like that. So they hire someone like me. And I'm behind the scenes. Sometimes I get credit on the cover. Sometimes I don't. If I get credit, I'll be a with, with Tim Van de Hey. Sometimes I'm completely invisible. But that's the general gist of what ghostwriting is. 
how I got into it was I was, I've always been a writer. I started working in a magazine when I was 22 and spent eight years working for other people, but I always wanted to be freelance. I never wanted to spend my life working for other people. I just didn't, I liked the idea of controlling all the time and controlling my own, what I was capable of earning. And after four years at an ad agency in Southern California, I said, I don't like the pressure here. I don't like the, the type of work I'm doing, but I like some of the people I've worked with. So I found three clients who did not like my agency at all, liked me. And I said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go freelance. Will you come with me? And basically, I poached three of my employer's clients. No, there's no other way to put it. I won't. But it was okay. They, they, they were going to leave, I think, anyway, because they didn't care for the company. They liked me when I said I was going out of my own. They said, yeah, we'll stay with you. And I moved down to a beach house at the bottom floor of a duplex with my best friend in Laguna Beach, California. Uh, we were living right below an Irish couple who were drunk all the time, pretty much. So St. Patrick's Day was really fun. Actually, most weekends and noisy. And we started, we planted our own weed and I started writing for myself. And I've never looked back. And that person is still my best buddy. And that was the, that was the beginning of 1995, back when internet was, it was pretty much AOL. The iPhone and things like that were a long way away. When you said you started, you said you started at a magazine? I started writing for a trade magazine that you would have never heard of. Um, run it by me. What is it? It was an old trade show magazine called Trade Show Week. It was, about, it was a magazine about trade shows. Might have heard of it. I don't know. I'm just curious because... I've met some other authors and some ghostwriters, I should say, too, that wrote for magazines that are completely gone. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Men's Health. I met somebody that used to write for Men's Health. Yeah, they're still around. Yeah, but it's, you don't see very many magazines nowadays. So I was just curious to see what you're writing for. And well, then the, the second one I worked for is still around. So I were, the next one I worked for was Black Belt. So yeah. I went and did work, worked for Black Belt Magazine and worked for them for couple of years, I think it was maybe two and a half years. And then she ran my own magazine there, Karate Illustrated, which was another sub subset. But I got to meet all the people who knew Bruce Lee because the people who founded the magazine were all friends and family of Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee was like a demigod. So I learned all about that. And I learned more about the magazine world, layout and advertising and design and all that stuff. That's good education. And I didn't, it was, wasn't work I was really that into. And didn't pay that well. When I had a chance to take a writing test for an ad agency that worked in the real estate business down in Orange County, down south of LA, I jumped in the chance. And apparently I aced the writing test because they offered me the job on the spot. I was there for four years and I learned a ton. I learned a ton about design, especially because I did a lot of graphic design, which I had never done before. But, but then I hit that point where it was like, there was a lot, it was a lot of pressure, a lot of deadline pressure. I didn't, I don't mind, I don't mind deadline pressure. I'm on deadline all the time. But it was imposed by somebody else. I had no control over the deadlines at all. I didn't like that. Plus, who doesn't? Not everybody wants to work for themselves. That's not a fair question. But I think a lot of people, will, if they had the opportunity, would work for themselves. And I certainly did. And it was good times. I was 30 years old. I had gotten rid of my girlfriend at the time. She and I had broken. <laughs> and I had to say, I don't mean gotten rid of like in a Sopranos way. I'm not that kind of gotten rid of. But she and I had... And she moved back east and I'm like, I'm 30 years old. I'm single, low to the beach with my best friend working for myself. It was good times, man. It was some good times, but I did that for about five years. And then in 1999, one of my clients who I'd known for a long time and done a ton of work for him, I was doing marketing copywriting at this point. It wasn't, books weren't even on my radar at all. Never thought about writing a book, never thought about ghostwriting, purely accidental. 
And this client of mine said, can you write a book for me about branding? And I said, absolutely, Peter, I can write them. I hung up, I can write a book. I hung up the phone and went, oh crap, how do I write a book? And because like I always tell writers when I, when I coach writers, I talk to writers, that's what you do in anything is when you want to pursue, if you want to pursue opportunities in this life, you say yes to everything. And yep. then you hang up the phone and you have a mild panic attack. And then you figure it out because otherwise God knows what you might turn down that you don't, that you might regret missing out on. I wrote that book. It was terrible, but it was, it was a, what's that? What was it about? It was about personal branding, like building your own personal brand. That's the, that's what, that's the business that this friend, this client and friend of mine was in. And it tanked, you said? Yeah, I, it was self, he self-published it and it was okay. a work client. He'd done that first time I'd done it. So not, neither of us know what we were doing. And, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it was very good. I don't think it sold, especially. I think he was using it as a more like a credential for his little marketing agency that he was building. But we did a couple more books and the third one, which is called The Brand Called You. He self-published really well. And I was a better writer by this time. This was in 2000. And, I want to say it was 03. So it was four years later. I'd got, I'd, I'd become a better writer by that. It was just through sheer practice and repetition. And I knew what I was doing more. And I'd written a couple of books for him already. This one did really well. It was actually a bestseller in, I want to say Japan or Korea, I forget which, but it did really well. And it was actually quite widely noticed. And I got a, a lot of people, agents, publishers, several famous authors, Mark Victor Hansen, who was the co-creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul, who became a friend of mine. He saw it. And I got started getting a lot of attention because of that book. And so like Mark came to me and said, do you, are you interested in helping me write a book? And I ended up writing, writing a book with him and Art Linkletter, if anybody remembers who Art Linkletter was. I, do you? Okay, good man. Yes. He was great. He was 92 when we were together and sharp, sharp as hell. Kept telling, kept, he kept telling the same jokes over and over again. That was the only thing that I noticed was like a little off, but a 92 year into yeah, 92, you had the career he had, you want to tell the same joke over and over again, go ahead. He was awesome. But I started to get, I started to get noticed by agents and things like that. And people started coming to me about writing books, about ghostwriting books for them. And in 2004, I got, I think I had four clients. I went to a big conference and I had four, four ghostwriting projects come out of that one conference. A couple of clients I, that I stayed, that were, I stayed with for quite, for several years. I just think I wrote, oh, probably three or four books for one of them in the medical field. And so that was the beginning of things. 2004 was really the year that my, my ghostwriting career became a career and not just some really cool sideline to my marketing writing. That's when I started to go, hey, now this could have some legs because I saw what the pay scale was. And I was <laughs> like, wow, it's promising. If I can keep up with the work, because I'm a fast writer, that's one of the things I've got going for me. I'm really fast, which is why I typically write five or six books in, in, in a single year. I've written about 65 up to this point. Now, not all of those have been big books and some of those have been published by little bitty publishers or self-published and some, but 17 or 18 of them have been published by big publishers, by the random houses of the world. But around that time, 04, 05, probably realistically 05 was when I got more, I kept getting more and more contacts and more and more work going, okay, I'm going to dedicate myself fully to this ghostwriting thing. I'm going to set the marketing thing aside. I contacted all my ad agency and branding agency contacts and said, I'm out, been a pleasure, but I'm not going to, don't call me with any more work because I'm going to focus just on writing books. And that's pretty much what I've done since then. I haven't done any really marketing writing at all. I've just written, I've just written books since 05. So back to almost the beginning. So when you started writing books, 
and you're like, oh crap, how am I going to do this? That very first one. <laughs> yeah. How did you, because this is ties into entrepreneurship, small business owners, you just jumped in feet first, but yeah. how did you start figuring it out? What got you down the path to say, okay, I can start doing this? I looked at other books. I looked at other, other books people, that people had written in the same general field, marketing and branding and things like that. And uh, that's how they organized their books and how they broke, how they presented the information. I noticed certain patterns that there was a real emphasis on wanting to create original IP, original intellectual property for the author. So the author could own certain phrases or processes or things like that, that there, that were theirs. Jim Collins owns good to great, that kind of thing, where is a phrase or a process or an exercise or a acronym that someone owns and is theirs and is part of their intellectual property. So there's a big emphasis on creating that sort of idea. Because most of these, like this book, was, a, was an, it was intended to help my client build his brand as a personal branding expert. Books are very good for that. But one of the reasons I do a lot of books for business people, for consultants, for speakers, is because a book carries a lot of prestige. Even if it's self-published, it still carries a lot of prestige. As long as it looks decent, if something self-published, it looks terrible, it doesn't really Even if it's on an Amazon bestsellers list? Yeah, even if it's on Amazon bestsellers list, it doesn't really matter. It, doesn't, it really doesn't matter. It, it's shocking. I've always found it a great irony that we live in this world now that's so digital, and yet this object made of dead trees with little scratches and ink on it carries so much intellectual weight. So I've literally seen, had clients who I did their book, they self-published, no hybrid publisher, no small publishing deal. They went to a self-publishing service, had a nice cover designed, got books in hand. Then a couple of these people were like professional speakers. That was their, pretty much their gig as they went around speaking about whatever topic they were speaking about. And a couple of cases, these guys, they're both men, went, took, got their books finished after six months or however long it took. And told me later on that their speaking fees literally doubled overnight because they had a book. Because the first question they always got was, do you have a book? When they would book a speaking game, do you have a book? Wow. They always had to say, no, I don't have one. And they knew they were passing up. They knew they were missing out because you can sell books. But it's not just that you can sell books. It's books elevate people in certain professions in terms of their standing, in terms of their prestige, which means you can charge more for your speaking. You can charge more for your consulting. You're going to have access to a greater to a higher quality, a higher caliber of client because people, your book could be crap. Book could be, it doesn't matter sometimes. It's just having a book. It's a strange dynamic, but having a book confers a certain amount of credibility on people and Even, does make a difference. So the book can be crappy, but you're saying the cover, so the outside has to look great, but the book on the inside with the content can be crappy and it still helps people? It does. Yeah, it really does. Because that crappy is in the eye of the beholder, right? It's about, yeah, I mean, it's about packaging. It's part of your brand. You have a book, you, which means, which tells people that you have ideas, that you were a professional enough to stick with the project and you have ideas to share. Now, ideally, the book won't be garbage. It'll have some, the content will have some value. But even if it doesn't have a ton of value, I mean, I Talk to people who had put out books and I read their books and write their books. I read their books and they're like, this is just warmed over junk that's been written in 50 other books. Didn't matter. Didn't matter because they, this was part of their brand. This is basically a really expensive business card for them, wow. but it really bumped them up in terms of their perceived X level of expertise and prestige. And for some books have the power to do that. So I, I have the dirty question to ask is, so something like that for a speaker or a consultant, if you're ghostwriting for them, 
what would be a typical fee that somebody would pay for something like that? This is their first book. You're, you, I'm not, let's not take your experience. Let's say oh. you're a middle of the road ghostwriter, maybe a little bit lower than you. Okay. What would that cost somebody that's in that space that wants their first book to be put out? If somebody is doing middle of their, because I'm, I'm at the upper tier. Yes. Uh, fees. But I have no problem telling you what fees are, but that's fine. No worries. No problem with that at all. But answer your question. So middle range, you're probably going to pay thirty to $40,000. You can and get it. You can get it cheaper than that, but you're probably going to pay 30 to 40 for somebody, somebody good with a moderate amount of experience. Okay. That's fair. So I got to go even now. Let's go further up yep. with Harry's biography that came out. What did that cost him? Oh, I have no idea. I can ballpark guess. It, dep- it depends. On, it depends on how the writer got paid. I forget the ghost name, but he's done it. He's done. He did Andre Agassi's oh, yeah. bonus, memoir a number of years ago, which was got fantastic reviews and was a huge bestseller. So can we jump, can we jump right into that? Let's talk about how ghostwriters get paid in the different yeah, well, there, out there's there. typically, Yeah, sure. There's typically two ways. The simplest way is when a book is not attached to a publisher and the writer did them in the, I'll just use myself as an example. So when the book is not attached to a publisher at all, an author might contact me and just go, Tim, I want to write a book, well, whatever the contact is. They're a CEO or they're a professional athlete or they're a reality TV star. They're a, a doctor, a lawyer, or whoever. And they will just pay me out of pocket generally. So you know, my typical fee is more like 60 grand. 60 grand. There's a certain number, certain, there's a certain class of people who can afford to pay that. That's out of, out of the realm of possibility for a lot of folks, which is why I refer a lot of work. Actually, there aren't enough ghostwriters to take the amount of work that I've rejected. I turned down a lot of work, which is a good thing. I always think, I always say when it comes to business, you are what you say no to. You can afford to say no to things you're doing well. And that's the straightforward way, which is there's no publisher attached to this thing. They may want to self-publish. They may want to publish with a hybrid where they pay for the cost of publishing, but the publisher is a real publisher like Greenleaf or Amplify, which is publishing swipe. They may want to go after an agent and a publishing deal later on. They may not be sure, but they want a book now. However, they're going to publish. They may not even know. A lot of times they don't have a clue how they're going to publish. They just, they want to get a book done. They're going to pay me directly over a period of however long it takes to get the book finished. How long does it normally take you to get a book finished? Uh, it really isn't. There's no normally lately. COVID really messed with all. COVID really screwed up my timelines. I've had more projects get postponed and delayed in midstream since COVID than I ever had before. But if you subtract COVID, if you take it out and you're talking about a full length, 65,000 word manuscript from word one, the planning and the writing, it's probably six to eight months. Wow. Done it fast work. I've done it a lot faster. I've done it as little as three. That was balls to the wall. Crazy. I wouldn't, I would generally not do that. I'd do it if a publisher paid me a lot of money. Can you get this book done in three months? Yeah, I could probably do it, but it wouldn't be pleasant and I wouldn't be pleasant. But in, but in general, that's what happens. So that's the simplest way. That's probably the, that's probably the track on which I get paid 70% of the time. Okay. The other 30%, and I don't know whether this happened with spare or not, is, is we'll have a, the author will either have an agent or they want an agent, literary agent. So we'll write what's called a book proposal. I only write nonfiction books. I don't do fiction. And nonfiction books are sold with a proposal, which is a, might be 50, 60, 70 page sales documents. 
that outlines <laughs> the book is the table, a very detailed table of contents, a couple of sample chapters, the marketing. Basically, it's a it's a stack that you first you send it out to literary agents. I just helped them, one of my authors get an agent a couple of weeks ago. So you send it out to agents, and they say yes, I'd love to represent this author, and they sign a contract, and off they go. And the agent submits the proposal to publishers, and the publisher, if they find a publisher who likes the book, says, "Here's an offer. I'm going to offer you two hundred thousand dollars for your book. Now, I might get paid a percentage of that." And that's what I'm getting paid. So if I get paid a percentage, then I'm taking a chance when I sign a contract saying, I'm going to get 30%, let's say, of whatever your advance is. Plus, I'm taking a risk there because if the advance is not so hot, I don't get paid much of it. So I don't always do that. The reason I go into that blind, you don't get to see that firsthand. You sign the contract with the author and, you know, whatever the term, the terms are, whatever the terms are. And uh, that's a matter of of, do you believe in the author? You believe in the book or not? Now, sometimes I'll just do a flat fee or if the author has an agent, they might just go through the agent and say, we're going to pay you this amount to write the book, whatever the advance is. So if the advance is low, I'm like, yes, I got really well paid and you got a little bitty advance. If the advance is huge, then I'm not getting a cut of it. And man, I could have had more. You take your chance. Either way, you take your chances. I've always figured, and I've had agents who say the same thing, it's better to not gamble on a percentage of something that you don't know what it is. Just have an amount, have a fee and say, okay, it's going to cost you $70,000 for this book. Whatever the, if it's a, a $400,000 advance, well, then your author did really well and everybody's going to be happy. And that's the way it goes. But by the way, I've only had that kind of that big a deal once in my whole career. That's not very common, but it's generally better to have a flat fee than get a percentage. My guess would be, you asked me about spare. My guess would be that ghost probably got a percentage of the advance and may well get a percentage of royalties because they had to know that any book, well, that book was going to get a monster advance. Yeah. That's like saying, that's that's like a book by Barack Obama or Oprah or somebody like that. It's going to be big. It doesn't take, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure that out. My guess would be that all, that ghost probably got 25% of the advance, which I don't know what the advance was, but I'm guessing it was in the millions. We did really well. That he may get a percentage of royalties and once the book earns out, which means it sells enough copies to earn back the advance, which it may not. I have no idea, but I'm sure he did very well. But that's still the top one hundredth of one percent. Those that's the hitting the jackpot kind of ghosting. So most of what us does, do. What does a typical ghostwriter make per deal? That's maybe got three to five, seven years of experience. Probably in that thirty to forty range. I was telling you about before. And that means they could probably write two to three books a year, roughly. Yeah. If, if you're the average, the average writer of average speed, if you have a good system, if you have a good structure, because the thing is, books a long-term project. So what I do is when I'm working on a project, I stagger my books. I'm not writing three manuscripts at one time. I might have a book that's in the planning stages, what I call development, where you're brainstorming and outlining and so on. I might have a book that's in the manuscript stage. And I might have a book that's in the revision stage all at the same time. That's how I, that's how I can write six books in a year. Now, writing three, if you have a system like that, or even four, probably is not that hard if you do it full time. And if you have a system, if you have a system where you're managing your time and managing the workflow. So yeah, I mean, you know, you could, if you were mid range and you were able to pull 40 projects, you could make 120 to 150 grand in a year. I'm not saying easily it's very much within the realm of possibility. Absolutely. 
So you work with other ghostwriters, coach them up and so forth. How do you? I'm trying to do it informally. I'm trying to make it a formal thing. I'm trying to. Okay. Yes. So right now it's informal. They call me and I help them out. Got it. I'm guessing a lot of ghostwriters don't have a system that's set up like yours. No, I don't really know. I don't know what their work practices are. But it's not really so much of a, it's not really so much of a system as it is just a work management, just a, I don't want to call it project management. This is not even that formal. I don't really use software and things to manage my projects. I'm a pencil and paper notes kind of guy. I don't know that they necessarily think of it that way. I really can't speak for that though, because I don't, I'm not leaning over, looking over their shoulder as they work. I know from having spoken to the newer ghosts, the less experienced ghosts that I've been informally helping out and coaching and referring work to over the past probably two years, really started during COVID. So we've lost two or three years. Most of them haven't really taken a systematic approach to staggering work like that. They might work on the impression I get. Again, I don't really, I'm not looking over their shoulder. The impression I'm getting is they're working on primarily working on one project at a time, or as one project is wrapping up, they're starting on another one. So there's a small overlap. One project is approaching final draft approval and they're starting work on another one. I've been, I've just been doing it such a long time. And I guess I was born to do this because it just, it's not something I learned. I just started to do it. I'll manage five or six projects at the same time. They won't all be books, by the way. They might be book proposals or they might be, I read a column for one of my clients for Fast Company Magazine. So I'm always managing a bunch of, I've always got a half a dozen balls in the air at any one time. That just, that just comes from experience. I know how long things take. And I know I've got lots of shortcuts on how to do things. But in but general, you, but, you know, but, but. Oh, but you would say that this has been learned over time. And so this is where we're back to entrepreneurship, small business owners, is we always have so many balls in the air that we're juggling. But if we don't apply the same, I don't know how to describe it, wor- work standards, we fail. And that's why I think you helping other ghostwriters is huge because you have those skills that you can pass on to others. I'm guessing they're probably not using the same type of system you're using. I'm not saying it needs to be automated, but you have a workflow that works for yeah. you and you can share some of those ideas and thoughts to allow them to be more productive. Yeah. And that's a struggle that we have as entrepreneurs because I'm viewing ghostwriters as an entrepreneur, small business owner, because you're truly managing the business. Ghost, ghostwriting is, there's two things ghostwriting is that separates it from other kinds of writing. It's journalistic, so not everybody can be a ghostwriter, which is fine because a lot of writers don't want to be ghostwriters. I've pitched it hard. I've said I was at a, I was doing a workshop at the, a small workshop in uh, Amelia Island, Florida, the very northeast tip of Florida, a few weeks back, and I was talking to some of the writers. They're all fiction writers about ghostwriting, and one of them, one I think one of them seemed pretty interested in it. The others were lukewarm, and that's the reaction I get because I think number one, a lot of writers. Fiction and nonfiction, doesn't matter. Want to ha- they, they're addicted to the byline. They want their byline out there. Now, I get my byline on some books. Some I don't. But I'd rather get paid. And if you get yeah. paid, yeah. I'd rather get published. I'd rather work with really cool people. I'd rather travel. I get to do all those things as a post. Writing novels and not having a thousand people read them. If that's what, if what's in your heart, that's great. But you could also ghostwrite. That's what I tell people all the time is, you don't have to give up writing your novels that have your name on them and trying to make a splash as a fiction writer. If you write, if you ghostwrite and you're good at it, you can write a couple of books a year, bank a cool 80 grand. That's not a fortune. You certainly live on that if you're if, more or, than any, very easily if you're, if you aren't a spendthrift, you're not living in California or New York City. 
And, and then you can have the time that can bankroll your fiction. I tell writers that all the time. The problem is ghostwriting is number one, it's journalistic. So you, you, it's a very much a journalist profession. You have to like good at telling other people's stories, not just a matter of ego. It's a matter of skill set. You have to really enjoy and be good at crafting other people's stories. And the other thing it is, as you said, it's entrepreneurial. You are, you're running a small business. You really are. And you are running a small business that is charged with caretaking other people's stories and putting a product out for them that may change their lives or may change the lives of other people who read their book. And that's that there's a lot of weight to that. That's important stuff. I take that very seriously. So there's a lot to it more, I think, than people realize. On the other hand, on the other side of it, it's just a really damn great way to be a professional writer. What else could you ask for? You know, I tell people that all the time. I tell writers that all the time. So you should try this. There's plenty of work. Believe me, I make a great living. I mean, I probably at my peak, which is now, I'm having my best, I'm on my way to my best year by a long shot in 2023. I'm probably going to surpass my best earnings on my ad agency job. Now, literally, that was 28 years ago, inflation. But I'm going to surpass my earnings probably by a factor of 10. This wow. Year, best year. I surpassed them. When I left my first full year of freelancing, 1995, I earned more than my best year at my ad agency job, right out of the gate. By a substantial margin, by probably about 20%. And that's never gone down. So that's been very financially rewarding as well. But yeah, I think for, there's a lot, there's a lot more to ghosting to ghostwriting than there just it, than there is to just being a, a professional writer in another way. You have to manage clients, which is a huge thing. That's one thing most writers don't know how to do. Because yeah. they, don't, they don't have their work on their own stuff. But if you're a speech writer, because there's a lot of ghostwriting with speeches, that's one of the other big areas where ghosts work. Lots and lots of speeches. But if you're writing a book for somebody, you're client managing. You're doing customer service, essentially. And you're managing their expectations. And not just probably about the book itself, but about the publishing process and can I get a publishing deal? Probably not because most people can't. So there's a lot to it in terms of just you're managing a bookmaking machine, which sounds like I'm talking about sports betting, but a book production machine. Yeah. So you are running a small business. Absolutely. And it can be a very lucrative one if you do it right. That is, it's really cool. And you hear all the nuances that go into this. So let's, before we wrap up, I want to swing on over to swipe your guys' new book and talk a little bit about that because now you're coming from behind the curtain and you're actually putting your name on a book. So let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So anyway, I'll try to, I'll try to bring it back a little bit to the financial side of things for your audience because this is a little bit different from the other, from Chasing Happiness. So Swipe is a book, started out as a business book, was conceived as a business book. My co-author, Dr. Tracy Maylett, who's an organizational psychologist, he and I wrote Swipe, but I ghost wrote two books for him and one of, and his writing partners prior. They were both on employee engagement. So from the corporate side. So how do you get your employees to engage with their jobs, basically? Which is an important thing, especially in the age of the great resignation, where everybody's bailing on their jobs, or even worse, quiet quitting. People don't leave, they just check out and stop caring, which is actually worse because you can't replace them or you don't replace them, they just sabotage things. So we were going to write a third book about Okay, let's, how do we get employees to choose to engage? You've got the corporate side over here where people or companies do all this stuff to get people to engage with the job. And we're going to write the other side. So we came up with this idea of disengagement based on technology, which is technology has sort of programmed us unconsciously to think, well, I'm not comfortable with something I'm doing on my phone. I can just swipe my finger and change my reality. 
And that has bled over into the physical world. We subconsciously think we can actually do that with real reality. And so it's lowered our threshold discomfort quite a lot, where we are much, find it much more, much easier now to whatever it is we're doing. I'm unhappy with this. I'm just going to what we call swipe and bail out, hit the eject button on pursuing a goal, whatever that goal happens to be, whether it's writing a novel or losing weight or getting in shape or saving money for retirement or learning an instrument, anything that requires long-term focus and discipline. We are more apt to do what we call swiping, which is just instinctively, reflexively, ah, I don't like this anymore. I'm uncomfortable. I'm embarrassed. This is not what I expected it would be, et cetera. And we realized that was really what this book was about. It wasn't just about employee engagement. It was about everybody because everybody has something that they've tried to do over and over again for years and not been able to pull it off. They, for some reason, they keep failing. And we re- realized that was a powerful topic. So that's what swipe is about. It's about why, about the fact that they, that mechanism exists, why we do it and how we can stop doing it. And that's, I think that applies to people in the world. I always think in terms of writers, because of course I've been in the world of writing for a long time, but it applies to finance as well, especially when I think it, and I think where it really applies is in the area of starting a business, because I've had businesses that I intended to start over the years, had all these big ideas and never followed through on it. And I finally realized it was because that's just not what I like to do. Simple as that. I did it because I thought I should. And that gets into the question of faulty. There's two big reasons people swipe, which is, again, the shorthand term for reflexively quitting something that you intended, you originally intended to, to achieve. One is faulty motivation and the other is faulty expectations. So I have seen, and I've done personally, things where people, situations where I said, well, I should start this business. I should get this company off the ground. I should, I have this idea, but don't, didn't really want to do it. When you, it's what, those are what I call self-imposed obligations. Think mm-hmm. you're supposed to do something. You think you should do something, but you don't really want to. It's not the fire's not in your belly. And we both know that as an entrepreneur, it's hard. And if you don't have a passion for it, if it's not what you want right now more than anything else, you're not going to do it. You're not going to see it. Yes. That's just not going to happen. But the other big factor is faulty expectations. What do you expect from this experience? What do you expect from the experience? And what do you expect for, for, from your results? Is your, your, are your expectations of the experience going to be congruent with reality? If you start a business, I don't care if it's a small one, you're going to put in a lot of hours. You're going to spend a lot of money. You're probably not going to make a lot of money right away. That's the path. We all know that. Right? If you've read any, if you've been exposed to startup culture at all, that's pretty much what happens. It's not all going to be, it's not all going to be living in your office, and living on ketchup soup might not get that deduction. But there are people who do that. There are people who work 72 hour weekends and don't get any sleep and live on pizza and so on. Those are cliches, but cliches are based in reality. So if you're expecting, I'm going to start this business and it's going to catch fire like that and the hours are going to be, are going to be easy. Okay. You're probably going to swipe then too, because the ex, you, those, your expectations are not congruent with the experience that you're likely to have. So I think that concept applies absolutely with complete relevance to the world of entrepreneurs in particular. And we, as entrepreneurs, we start a lot of things. And unfortunately, we think we can handle all those things that we start. It ends up being, again, having too many balls juggling in the air and we never get there. 
and then things start falling through the cracks. You start having issues. It's a disaster. And I know that all too well with two failures of businesses and now on the third and going to start a fourth and a fifth. And I'm like, why do I want to start? Why do I want to start two other businesses? And I think we talked about this on Chasing Happiness is there's 12 and a half million baby boomers that have viable businesses that have been around for decades that they have no succession plans. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to go try to reinvent the wheel. I'm going to go find an entity that's in this wheelhouse that I'm looking for and be able to bring technology and a different set of eyes to it. And it's actually kind of been an interesting journey to talk to these baby boomers that have retired, that are going to retire and their kids want nothing to do with their business. It is just eye opening for me of what goes on. And I think that's part of the culture we're in and we can go on for a while, but we're getting close to that end is that we put that one, and I said this on Chasing Happiness too, we put that one video out and we expect that video to make us go viral. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about with the book and Swipe is we think that we're going to put this business together, start it. And like you said, boom, instantaneously, it takes off. The current business I have today, just really quick, TrueVest, it's taken five years to get to where it's at. It's been a shit ton of work that's gone into this to get it to where it is at today. And it's been rough. And there's been a lot of sleepless nights. Sure. Well, it always is. It always is. It's taken me, I'm at the peak of my career right now. I'm 58 years old. It's taken me, it's taken me 28 years to get, and I've had great years. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm close to the top of my profession. But to get where I'm at right now has taken me 28 years, which it hasn't, and it hasn't been like this. It's been a steady climb. Still, you get to a certain point where you're getting certain opportunities, you're getting certain levels of compensation, you're getting certain amounts of notoriety. It takes time. The thing I think, if if I can throw out a a closing idea that relates both to writing and to entrepreneurship, is this that, because I tell this, I use this with writers. Over the, I have used this with writers over the years quite a lot, talking to them about career stuff. And that is that there are two ways to think about this profession. There's wanting to be a writer and there's wanting to write. And those are not the same thing. And I've come across a lot of writers, or should I say aspiring writers, wannabe writers, who they want to be a writer. They want that, they want that self-image. They want to feel like that's their brand, like they, so that they can look in the mirror and say, I'm a writer, but that's not the same thing as actually just writing, you know, do the work and you are a writer, but the aspiration should be to do the work, to produce whatever it is you're doing, whatever kind of writing you're doing, whether it's journalism or books or speeches or PR or fiction or poetry or whatever it is you're going to write. The aspiration should be to do the work, not to, if you're aiming for some sort of identity, the identity can't be the goal. The identity comes through the work. I'm a ghostwriter, not because I said, I want to be a ghostwriter. I'm a ghostwriter because I never said that. It's like I said, it was an accident. I'm a ghostwriter because I've ghostwritten a ton of books. Sorry, I didn't realize I could swear. So I'm going to say a shit ton of books. So you better wait for me to use. (laughs) Appreciate that. I was going to stay PG. But but it's the same thing, I think, for entrepreneurs, right? I've known a lot of entrepreneurs, brilliant people, men and women, both who have, who have had this idea that they want to be an entrepreneur because they love the idea. It's just the same thing as we're in love with, just the same as as aspiring writers who aren't writers or working in some other profession and they want to be full-time writers. 
and they have this romantic idea and they see themselves as that identity. And same thing with, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to build something. I want to be looked at with esteem and respect by other people who know the work I've put in, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And instead the focus is then don't worry about it. Don't go out and do it. Don't think about, I don't know any successful entrepreneur who calls themselves an entrepreneur. That's the point. They say, I built this company or I do this. They don't say, I'm an entrepreneur. That's not the point. The point is the identity comes through the work. If you're focused on the identity, on the package, on the label, that's the, then you're going to, you're going to take because you're not going to have the fire in the belly to keep it going. The focus, the identity comes through the work, whether it's as a writer, a musician, an entrepreneur, anything else comes through doing the work and focusing on the work and doing the work the best you can and the smartest way you can. And the rest of it, the label comes later. I'm I'm labeled a ghostwriter because of what I've done, not because I chose one morning to get up and say, I'm going to be a ghostwriter. Just an accident. Good accident. Very lucky. Well, that's cool. That's a great way to segment and let's wrap this up. The book. Why don't you tease it a little on the video and then what the website is for the book? Sure. The book is called Swipe. It is subtitled The Science Behind Why We Don't Finish What We Start. It's published through with Amplify Press. It comes out on March 21st, first day of spring. And you can find it on Amazon and it's also at swipethebook.com. And, and we'll make sure that's in the show notes like we did for Chasing Happiness so people awesome. can pre-order it there. Sir, I thank you very much for coming on the show. Everything you said was so enlightening, but also you have some humor with it and the journey of being a ghostwriter. It's really cool to see what you've done and what you're doing and what goes into it because it's truly work that you're passionate about. I am. I enjoy it. I wouldn't live any other way. It's awesome. Thank you, sir, for coming on short notice. And I hope you have a great day. Ryan, pleasure, man. Thanks a lot. You too. Yeah.